picture of uh, anointing of Saul as the king of Israel. Today we will talk about a big celebration, an election and inauguration, and a war. So sounds familiar? So last week we saw that Israelite asked Samuel that they wanted to have a king like other nations. Oh. The Eastside Academy jar is coming around. If you're writing a check, write it to Eastside Academy. Okay, take your time, do what you need to do. Sorry, thank you, Chris. Okay. So they wanted to have a king like other nations. So let's see what's wrong with having a king like all the other nations. The phrase itself is not necessarily negative. However, by definition, Israel is different than the other nation of the world. It was to be set as a light among the world to show the glory of God. So Deuteronomy 4.32 said, Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and live? No. So also Israel is different by command. The law constantly uh, highlights the need for Israel to be distinctive to the nation around them. So Israel's request is not just to have a king like other nations, but actually to be like the other nation around them. So which means that the Israel like reject God as their king, and also they reject their calling to be a holy nation. That is the problem. So let's look at the overview of these chapters. Uh, chapter 9 is about God's call. God provides Saul as the leader of his people. In chapter 10, God's confirmation of his call. And God reveals Saul as the leader of his people. In chapter 11, it's affirmation of Saul's call. So God empowers Saul as the leader of his people. And chapter 12 is talk about Samuel's farewell speech. So let's see verses 1 to 2. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name is Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Jeror, the son of Bechrath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Chapter 9 starts with the genealogy of Saul, which is similar to the genealogy of Samuel in chapter 1. So in the Bible, if you see the introduction of genealogy, it means an important person will come from there. So it starts with Kish, the father of Saul a man of standing, which means he is wealthy and influential man in Israel. It means that Saul came from a prestigious family and was born to wealth and influence. Saul was described as the tallest and the most handsome man in all Israel. It's like Mr. Israel. <laughs> so he was the total package. Tall, handsome, and rich. What more do you need? 
But there is one thing that is missing in this description of Saul. There's nothing said about the, his relationship with God. We can see the evidence of it when we go through these chapters. There is a similar description about appearance of David and Joseph. 1 Samuel 16, 18 mentioned that David is a brave man and a warrior. And he speaks well and is a fine looking man. And the Lord is with him. In Genesis 39, Joseph was well built and handsome, and the Lord was with Joseph. So unlike the note on David and Joseph, there's no, the Lord was with Saul. There's nothing said because there was nothing to say. I'm not saying that he's a bad man, but he's not a particularly spiritual man. It is only after Samuel anointed him as a king and said, God is with you. So what does this mean? When I was in college in Korea, I went to women's university. So no guys were allowed in our school. So we had a so-called group blind day a couple times a year. So 30 to 40 of my classmates would meet guys from another school, usually from an engineering department, because an engineering department usually uh, has more guys than girls. So we met them at a restaurant and pick up a number and would be a partner with a guy who had the same number. Usually a restaurant is you know, big and pretty dark, so I cannot see my friend's partner that well. So if I find my friends on the other side of the restaurant, we have an eye talk like this. How is it? You know? And then my friend showed me thumbs up. If a guy glance at that, he might think, hey, she thinks I'm good. But what this means is that he's short, bald, and has a pot belly. <laughs> I know we are shallow and superficial, I know that. But at least we didn't offend anybody. On the contrary, I think we gave guys an ego boost. They think they are cool. So Israel was looking for a king. This is their first human king in the entire history of Israel. Can you imagine God give them this kind of king? Whom do you choose to be a king? <laughs> Come on. I was, I was looking for a picture, and I was thinking, hmm, who looks like this? And immediately, Danny DeVito came to my mind. I think that was the Holy Spirit talking. Don't get me wrong, I love Danny DeVito. He's a great actor. But to be honest, we all want Justin Trudeau kind of king. Look at him! <laughs> because people want someone who looked impressive. Like that, Saul was the people's man. He had all the fleshy, fleshly qualifications that the people would appreciate. That is why God chose Saul, because 
God knows that he was the man that the people wanted. However, God also knows that's not good enough to be a king. That is why after anointing, God's spirit is upon him. God is with him to help him out. Can you see God's grace here? Okay, who ever thought searching for a king started with lost donkeys? God has sense of humor. So the story goes like this. When Kishi's donkey got out, he sent Saul and a servant to search for them. They traveled for many miles. Uh, this is where they went. From Gibeah to all the way to the uh, country of Ephraim through Shalisha and Shalim. And now they are uh, region of Juth and town of Ramah, where is uh, Samuel's hometown. So Saul might whine about those dumbasses, <laughs> but this is not a first word, please. But I think those smart asses know how to follow God's plan. For about three days travel, Saul is ready to throw in the towel and give it up. Then the Saul's servant tells Saul about this man of God in the town and they should seek his counsel. Saul was concerned about the payment for this man. But the servant also has some silver with him. So payment wasn't going to be an issue. Coincidence? Here we can see Saul's inadequacy. Unlike Saul, the servant has the wise instinct to make right suggestion. Saul was unaware of this seer's existence. Even if he doesn't know who this seer is, at least he should have known Samuel's existence in Ramah because he is a prophet and priest and judge in Israel. It indicates his spiritual ignorance. And also, unlike Saul, the servant is prepared. He has necessary resources for the journey to continue. As they are going up to the hill to the town, they just happen to meet some girls who give them exact instruction about how to find the seer. Coincidence? It also turns out the seer just arrived back to town that day. If they have arrived one day earlier, it would have been too soon. If they have arrived one day later, it might have been too late. The perfect timing. Coincidence? The seer who just happened to be Samuel and who just happened to walk to them at the exact time they entered the city. Not only that, but they are right on time for a special feast that they knew nothing about. Coincidence? So from a purely human point of view, Saul's arrival to Samuel's town is unlikely. From those girls' point of view, hey, those guys are lucky. But from a divine point of view, they are expected. The day before, God has already informed Samuel 
verses 15 to 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord has revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler of my people Israel. He will deliver them from the, land, from the hands of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. This is like a behind-the-scenes story. We don't always know what God is doing, but these verses show us that God is there, and He is working out His plan. So even though Israel rejected him as their king, God is still in control of all things. So in here, we can see three important things about God's plan for our life. First, God's plan precedes our present circumstances. So we can trust him to lead us to the next step. Second, God's plan is bigger than you. In verse 16, God's plan includes the whole nation of Israel and their deliverance from the Philistines. Saul was just looking for donkeys, but God was building a kingdom. Third, God will tell you what you need to know when the time is right. In verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, God told him, this is the man. We always want all the information up front, but God doesn't usually work that way. But we can take comfort in knowing that God will let us know what we need to know when we need to know it. So finally, Samuel and Saul met, and Samuel told him that Israel's future in, is in his hand. Then, verse 21, Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? The tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out in the civil war at the end of Judges. In Judges 20 to 21, some of the Benjamites had a gang rape or Levi's concubine to death. And then they defend the action rather than bring those men to justice. So Israelites went out to battle against the tribe of Benjamin. So most of the Benjamites were killed as a result. That is why the tribe of Benjamin was the smallest tribe at the time. However, Saul's, uh, Saul's clan is not the least of all clans. Saul's family was wealthy. So Saul's question seems like based on humility or curiosity, hey, why me? But if we dig deep into it, it came from, came from Saul's fear or insecurity. We see this pattern as we continue on in this book. Then Saul was anointed as a king of Israel by Samuel in chapter 10. Verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil 
and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler of his inheritance? The only things anointed with oil before this anointing were priests and the tabernacle. It represents their consecration. In other words, it set them apart, dedicate them, and sanctify them for holy use. So anointing soul here signifies that God is instituting the monarchy and establishing soul as a king. He has you no know, it has nothing to do with soul himself. God just grants soul with his power to equip and serve effectively for the job. So what that implies is that he was not to rule and manage Israel according to his own will, but according to the will and mind of God. After that, Samuel gave Saul three signs, which could serve to confirm Samuel's authority to anoint him as a king and signify God's presence to carry out the demands of kingship. The signs are meant to assure. First sign is the message of two men at the Rachel's tomb at Zelza near Bethlehem. The message is the finding of donkey. It implies that God can solve our problems. On the Rama to go Zelza here. And um, so second sign is a gift of three men at the Oak of Tabor, which is accepting of the gift of two loaves of bread. The exact site is unknown, but it implies that God can provide for our daily need. Third sign, which is procession of prophets, soul join with them and prophesies. It implies that God can transform and empower us for his service. So he is go on the way home, Gibeah, he prophesied. After that, in verse 6 to 8, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever you, your hands find to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So here, soul is to receive both power of the Spirit and the direction of the Word through Samuel. God's Spirit gives power, but that power is to be exercised in obedience to God's Word. So what they mean is that even though soul is promised power of God's Spirit, he is to submit to Samuel, the prophet who brings God's Word. The prophet of God has more and real authority than the king over Israel. 
Didn't Samuel said, I tell you what you are to do. So here, Samuel also got the first instruction to obey. Wait for seven days until I come to you. Later we'll see how it turned out. So all the confirming signs took place the same day. So when Saul finally returned home, his uncle asked him about what's going on. He is interested in what happened, especially when he learned that Saul has met with Samuel. And also, I think he may be very curious why Saul's hair is so oily. <laughs> so, yeah, they are not just dab, you know, oil on your forehead like these days, just pour the oil on your head. But Saul told him only the part of the donkeys, not being anointed. Why didn't he tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? <laughs> Is this humility? Is this embarrassment? Is Saul unsure of himself? Is he afraid? Is he wise? Or is he intimidated? We can guess any way we want, but I think that his incomplete answer hints at Saul's true character. Saul is holding back because of fear and hesitance, which comes from lack of confidence and faith. The rest of the soul's story proves that. So the story in chapter 9 to 10, 16, it's about the private choice of Saul as a king. The time has come to choose him publicly before the entire population. A two-stage pattern of God's call is established here. First, God privately called a leader and then publicly set him apart for his service. So David's confirmation to the kingship could also follow this same two-stage beginning. So Samuel called Israel together at Mizpah and began to pick lots. So Mizpah over here, so from Gibeon to Mizpah. And they must determine by lot. First, the tribe. Second, the grand division by families. Third, smaller division, division, division by families. And then, the individual. So when the lot was cast for the tribe, Benjamin was taken. And when for the grand division, the division of Metri was taken. When for the family, the family of Kish was taken, when for individual, Saul was taken. The process of the lot looks like a lottery drawing, but Proverbs 16.33 mentioned, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So we see God controlling the casting of the lot again in Acts 1.26, which is choosing Matthias as a disciple to replace Judah. So God used the lot to disclose his will. But it is important to say that Saul did not become king because of the choosing 
by lot. Instead, he was chosen king because of God's words to the prophet, prophet Samuel. So choosing by lot simply confirmed the word of God through Samuel. So Saul was chosen, but he was nowhere to be found. It turned out that Saul was hiding behind the pile of baggage. And again, the Bible doesn't say why. The, this great big guy acts just like a little kid, ran and hid. Can you see the pattern here? Saul always has fears. We see his fears throughout the book of Samuel. In his calling as king, Philistines, his own army, Goliath, David, Oku, and Samuel's prophecy about his death and defeat. Do you remember in verse 8, Samuel asked him to wait for seven days until he comes? Chapter 13 said he didn't wait because, of, because his fear of Philistines drove him to make the burnt, burnt offering himself. No sooner had he done it, Samuel arrived and wanted to know why he didn't wait. He said, I thought blah, 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 blah. That is the problem. He thought he could handle things on his own. He thought he could take things into his own hand. If we try to solve everything with our own power, of course we have fear. Fear of failure, fear of not good enough, not smart enough, not popular enough, fear of what other people think about me, what other people say about me. That is the problem of soul. And some of us too. I said earlier, God's spirit gives power. But the power is to be exercised in obedience to God's word. But Saul didn't know how. Saul experienced so many powerful encounters with God's miracle, such as unexpected anointing and fulfilling signs and prophesying, prophesying and confirming as a king by his own people. But he still doesn't know how to put his faith in God. God also provides Saul a remarkable mentor, Samuel, and remarkable son, Jonathan, and remarkable friend, David. These men could, help, could have helped Saul rule well. God had wonderfully worked in Saul's life, and he had opportunity to glorify God. So the failure of Saul is due to his personal incapability to walk in the ways of God and trust and obey God. The choices he made by inner fear, not fear of God, and faithlessness prevent him from utilizing appropriate resources God has graciously given him to rule in justice and righteousness. So, okay, go back. Now people have to find Saul and, and bring him out. 
Actually, God told them he is hiding behind the baggage. Isn't that funny? I can picture God is rolling his eyes. After they brought him out, in verse 25, Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited before the Lord. Many scholars see the action list in verse 25 uh, as one of the crucial turning points in Israel's history. Samuel declared the regulations of the kingship to the people. He first declared this to the people, and then he wrote them down in a scroll. The exact contents of the document are unknown, unfortunately. Samuel may have given a copy to Saul, but the original was uh, deposited at the Mizpah sanctuary. The purpose of this Mizpah covenant was to distinguish Israel's kingship from that of the surrounding nations. So even though they have a king now like the other nations, Israel's kingship still has to be different. In chapter 11, the first test of Saul's leadership arose. Nehesh, the king of Ammonite, comes and threatens the people of Jabesh Gilead. Here, Ammonite threatened Jabesh Gilead. Saul had an affinity for the people of Jabesh Gilead. Here's a little bit of background. I said earlier that in, in the end of the book of Judges, some Benjamites raped and killed the Levite concubine, and the tribe of Benjamin refused to bring those men to justice. So all of Israel gathered together against Benjamin to do battle. But no one from Jabesh Gilead came to assist. Because of that, Israel also attacked Jabesh Gilead and killed everyone except for 400 virgins. During this civil war, wait, during this civil war, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> during this civil war, the tribe of Benjamin had been virtually wiped out. But Israel didn't want to totally eradicate the tribe of Benjamin. So they decided to give this 400 version from Jabesh Gilead to the last remaining Benjamin men for the survival of the tribe of Benjamin. So therefore, it is very possible that Saul is a descendant of these versions of Jabesh Gilead. If he isn't, at least two-thirds of his tribe of Benjamin are. So under Nehesh's threat, the men of Jabesh Gilead attempt to surrender to Nehesh. But Nehesh's condition is that the right eye of every man in the city will be gouged out. Why did he make this demand? First, it will disable them so that they cannot fight well. Think about it. Without your right eye, you cannot aim your bows. And also, soldiers in that day used their left hand to hold their shields to protect their left eye and 
to pick with your right eye to fight. So without right eye, you cannot fight. So second, it will humiliate the Israelite. It would be lifelong and obvious evidence to their weakness. So in desperation, the people of Jewish Gilead decide to call for help. When Saul heard the news, the Spirit of God once again came upon him. He immediately cut up his oxen and sent the pieces to every tribe and threatened them that if they didn't come out to fight, that the same thing would happen to their oxen. But what does this membrane oxen have to do with anything? This uh, symbolic gesture is clearly connected to the history that the raped concubine's body was also cut up to 12 pieces to send every tribe for the appeal for revenge. This is in the Bible. This is a fascinating story, so if you are interested in just read Judges 20 to 21, the last chapters. So Saul's army is assembled in Bezek to fight Ammonite. From here, we go fight. Um, Saul lead Israel to victory over Ammonite. But Saul admit that it was God's doing, not him. So God gave blessing to his people as long as their leader submitted to his authority. So after the victory, Samuel tells the people to assemble at Gilgal so that they can renew their commitment to Saul as their king. From here to Gilgal. It is known as a king's coronation ceremony. Another irony is that Gilgal is the place of both Saul's coronation and his rebuke and his ultimate rejection as a king by Samuel. Okay, chapter 12. Many versions of the Bible title the chapter 12 as Samuel's farewell speech. The time of kings has, had begun so that Samuel just dropped his duties as a judge but his duties as a prophet remain the same. So it is Samuel's farewell speech as a judge. His speech uh, begins with the charges they have against him. He admits that his sons may have lacked integrity, they may have done things for dishonest gain, but he did not live that way. He claims his blamelessness in his role as a judge. Verses 3 to 4 said, Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointing. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Last week, Nan talked about what a king is going to do. He's going to take, 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 take. Remember that? So here, Samuel emphasized that he has never taken from the people in contrast to the new king who will do 
exactly that. The people affirmed that indeed his life was blameless before that. I think this is a very valuable testimony for any leader. How amazing to stand before your own people to hear them affirm the integrity of your leadership. I wish we could do the same to our leader after four years. <laughs> Samuel's vindication paved the way for him to continue in his role as a prophet. This is significant because of the importance of the words of God in the rule of his kingdom and its relationship to the kings. So even though the king is being installed, God still rules through his word. This is the difference between Israel's kingship and other nations. Then, Samuel talked about Israel's vicious sin cycle throughout the history. So God delivered Israel from their enemy, then Israel sinned against God, and then Israel afflicted by the enemy, then Israel craved to God for deliverance, and then God delivered Israel from enemy. It's going on and on and on like this. <laughs> A cycle is played out twice so far. So far, it happened again. The first cycle was when Israelites were slaves living in Egypt and cried out to God. So God raised up Moses and Aaron to bring them out of slavery. The second cycle was when Israelites cried out to God while being oppressed by other nations. So God raised up other judges to deliver them. But this time, under the threat of Ammonite, they chose their own plan. This time, they demanded a king to help them instead of God. They looked upon their king as their deliverer. In their mind, the king is the key to success. Look at their sin cycle. God has already delivered them without the help of an earthly king, hasn't he? Samuel's goal here is to prove to them that their present demand to have a king like the rest of the nation is the one more example of their rebellion against God, just like the same rebellion of their ancestors. Also, he reminds them the king is not the key to Israel's success. The key is Israel's trust in and obedience to God. So God confirmed the truth of Samuel's word by sending thunder and rain. Now because it was the wheat harvest, did this sign display not only God's power, but also his judgment because heavy rain during the harvest time could destroy their crops. This sign was especially also meaningful because one of the common idols of that day was Baal, who was thought to be the god of thunder and rain. 
So let's look at the verses 19 to 25. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servant, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord. The serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. If it, yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is the conclusion. So what did we learn from here? First, we are sinners. Notice in verse 19, the people do not look to their king for deliverance, but to Samuel. The Israelite now realize that the main problem is not political leadership, but their sin. That vicious sin cycle is not just Israel's story. It is also our story. Second, God is faithful to his own name. God will not deal with us simply according to whether we act wickedly because he has the commitment to his own great name. God's faithfulness for us is governed by the truth and righteousness of his own name, which is the basis for our hope. Third, his grace is greater than our sin. Verse 20 said, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. From a human point of view, it should have said, be afraid. You have done all this evil, right? Since God has been pleased to make us his own people, he will not forsake us. That is pure grace. So God's grace treats us not the way we deserve. It is not only by grace alone we become God's people, but by grace alone we remain His people. Fourth, only God is the King of all. He has no other competitors. He is our ultimate and final leader. Therefore, our hope of salvation is not based upon our performance, but based upon God's grace, not based upon our faithfulness, but upon His faithfulness, is not because of who we are, but because of who He is. Thank you.